On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. You've heard the phrase mind over matter before, but have you truly given your brain the credit it deserves? On this episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, I was super excited to sit down with Alex Hutchinson. You might know him from Sweat Science, his column on Outside Magazine Online, or you might know him from his recent New York Times bestseller, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex and I talked about the role that your brain plays in your athlete's performance, some different ways you can train that, and also some of his recommended resources for you. Alex is going to be one of our keynote speakers at this year's Endurance Coaching Summit in Boulder, Colorado. We'll be sure to include a discount code at the end of the show. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I am your host, Dave Shell, and today I have the great pleasure to be joined by Alex Hutchinson. You might know Alex from his column, Sweat Science, or you might know him from his 2018 New York Times bestseller, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be here. Before we get into it, you haven't always been a um, science writer or really based in endurance. So where did you get your start? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a, a long and twisting path. I uh, I started out as a physicist, actually. I, that's what I studied in university. And uh, for most of my 20s, I, I worked as a physicist while I was also competing as a, as a middle and long distance runner. And I had you know, it's kind of, I, I, I wouldn't say I had like this magical epiphany where, you know, choirs of angels were singing to me, Alex, you know, go become a journalist. But I, I kind of had the, the, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty, uh, a, a big jump. I was 28 and I'd never done any journalism before, like no student paper. And I just thought, man, journalism seems like a lot of fun. I'm going to go do that. So I left my, what was the time, a postdoctoral position with the national security agency and went and did a, uh, started, started at the, at the bottom did a master's degree in, in a one year master's degree in journalism. Worked then worked at a, a newspaper in Ottawa, Canada for sixteen months doing like general assignment reporting, you know, car crashes and and, and dog fashion shows and things like that. Uh, and then uh, after that, I decided <laughs> after enough of that, I decided I wanted to be a freelancer. And so that was that was two thousand six. And um, at, you know, initially my 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 beat was I would write about anything that anyone would pay me to write about. Um, I did a lot of like accounting, you know, for the accounting, Canada's accounting monthly, uh, writing about accounting news and stuff. But pretty soon I started to kind of, kind of leverage my, my two areas of, of interest and expertise, which were the, the science, which is what I'd started out as career wise and, and running or endurance, which was my, my big passion. And so I gradually started to write more and more about that. And ended it ended up almost by accident as my, as my specialty. That's cool. And that's, um, pretty cool that you found something that you enjoyed doing that you could still use your uh, science background in. So my introduction to you was through your website, sweatscience.com. And I don't know if it's because I'm a simpleton, but I've always been a big fan of people that can take very complex subjects and turn it into something digestible. And so was that, was sweatscience.com kind of your first foray into that? Or did that come later after you'd had some success with writing? Yeah, I I started to do some some magazine and newspaper pieces on on the science of endurance. And I actually while I was at this the Ottawa Citizen, this newspaper where I started at, out at, I had one opportunity to write about running, a big long sort of feature piece 
And it was about, I, I wrote about the Kenyans who were coming to the Ottawa Marathon and one, one runner in particular who had won the race the year before. And everyone said, hey, that was the best piece I'd ever written. And, and so I sort of realized writing about the stuff I, I, I cared about would be uh, sort of brought out the best in me. And so I started to do a few magazine pieces and then I, I got a newspaper column called with a, a newspaper here in Canada called the Globe and Mail, where I was writing about the science of exercise. And I just, and, and in order to, to come up with every two weeks, interesting new studies, I had to be looking through journals all the time and sort of reading, uh, you know, all the abstracts and, and plowing through a whole bunch of ideas. And what I realized is there were only a few, like I could only pick one study every two weeks to write about for the globe. But I realized there was this whole fire, ho fire hose of interesting new studies coming out all the time that peep that that I was interested in and I figured well I'm not the only person out there who sort of is interested about in in optimizing performance and and health for that matter um so I thought hey if I'm reading these abstracts anyways why don't I just start a blog cuz back this was 2008ish back this is when blogs were like the next big thing I thought <laughs> I, I'll just start a blog and then all I have to do is like you know, I've gone to the trouble of reading this abstract and, and you know, maybe call, getting the 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 the, paper, the journal paper from the, the the library to figure out whether it's something to write about. I just summarized the key point, and I know if if I were someone else, I would be interested in reading that. So that was how it started: is just saying, "Man, there's all this information. It's behind a firewall for most people, and they don't necessarily have time to be combing through." I have this job that asks me to comb through the the the, the ongoing firehose of scientific literature on. The science of endurance. Why don't I just, even if I'm not writing an article article about all of them, why don't I just start sharing a few key key highlights? Like, hey, here's a study that found that ice baths don't do anything, or you know, whatever the case may be. And I know that I definitely appreciate it because, as you just said, um, so as a coach, I, you hear all the new studies, and it's it's very tempting to just jump on to whatever that new trend is. And really, the good science would be to go through and verify these things um, on your own. But a lot of coaches just don't have time to do that. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that for us. Well, thanks. Yeah, and, and it's certainly over what I've seen as as the right role has evolved over time too. I, where it started out, I would just sort of uncritically, uh, you know, repeat what the abstracts have said. And what I learned as as time went on is like I'd realize, oh wait. That's that abstract that I reported on, or that paper that I reported on two years ago. No one has ever reproduced that, and it turns out that was probably wrong. It was probably a kind. Of, so now I, I try to do a better job at, at providing context, and because I've ended up specializing in this, when I see a new study that says, you know, uh, you know, this magical pill is going to make you faster, I, I remember that five years ago I wrote about several other studies that found that that magical pill doesn't make you faster. So I have a little more context. So, so it's it's definitely. Like you said, it's you know it's tempting to just sort of follow each new trend or new abstract, and 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 there's a value add for having having someone put it in context, and I think I'm I'm better at doing that now than I than I was initially. But it started out as just like, hey, let's at least just be aware of all this great uh, scientific research that people are doing that has relevance to to the things that coaches care about. And so. I'm going to speak to you a little bit about Endure, which is your most recent book, but that's not your first book. Um, I have another book of yours, and I, I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but I think it's What Comes First, Cardio or Weights? Yeah, and I, I would just like to say that I, I pitched that book to be titled uh, Sweat Science, uh, train, it's Training Truths, or Science, I can't remember the subtitle, but uh, and the, the, the publishing company wanted to appeal to a broader audience and suggested which 
which comes first, <laughs> cardio or weights, which I think turned off a lot of people for sort of more serious exercises because it sounds like, a, you know, oh, should, how do I tone my abs? And it really, it's meant to be a little bit more of a uh, sort of hard-nosed scientific look at the common questions that people have about fitness. Right. And I, and that's what I love about it is that it's, for me, it's turned into kind of a reference that I, when I have questions about those sorts of things, I can go back and see like at that time, what was the thinking? Um, and so did, was that just a collection of science, sort of the blogs off of sweatscience.com or did you dive deeper into that um, to create that yeah, book? Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, it was it was mostly uh, growing from my newspaper column because, as, as you know, as I was saying before, the, the blogs in a lot of cases were very just sort of, hey, I read this paper, here's something cool from it. Whereas for the newspaper columns, uh, I was virtually always calling up the scientists involved and and calling up some other scientists who weren't involved in the study and getting a little more context. So so it, from those newspaper columns, I, I used them as a base and the newspaper column was structured in a way that, you know, every two weeks I would answer a question like, you know, if I'm doing a workout, should I be doing my cardio or my weights first if I'm doing both, you know, which is better? And I would try and look at the scientific literature and answer those questions. And so then I brought together a lot of those pre-existing columns and then added, in, in, in total, there were like 111 questions and answers in that book. So a lot of them I wrote from scratch, but the the idea was in that book was uh, you know, every, every answer is, you know, between 500 and a thousand words. So it's not, uh, it, it's not like the ultimate deep dive. It's, it's like, okay, just, I'm, I'm curious about this question. Tell me what we know. And, and, you know, what that amounts to is you give 111 versions of like, well, it kind of depends, you know, so, <laughs> uh, you know, the answers are, are seldom as black and white as we hope, but at least, uh, you know, the goal is to say, look, I, I'm not going to tell you what you need to do. I'm not going to tell you if you should be running in, you know, bare feet, or I'm not going to tell you if you need to stretch, but I'm going to tell you what the evidence has found so far. And you can, you can make up your mind. And now, um, so at one point, sweatscience.com got picked up by runner's world. Is that Yeah. Correct? And I think it was 2012. They, they, uh. Uh, invited me to to move my blog to Runner's World and gave me a chance to write a column in the magazine too. So that was a real kind of uh, exciting opportunity. I mean, for a number of reasons. One is that it brought a, a huge new readership to the the blog, and and it allowed me to it, it sort of that was the moment that I was like, oh, you know, I could actually make a living from this because on the, when I was hosting my Sweat Science on its own, I, I didn't take any ads because I just um, not you know fundamentally, I, I guess I like to think that I'm a nice guy. And so if, some, if, if, if someone sends me a free sample of something or tells me, it spends some time telling me about, you know, their product, I, I have a hard time saying, well, this is a bunch of garbage and no one should do this. So I didn't, I, I really didn't right. want to be involved in that sort of uh, necessary quid pro quo. So going to Runner's World, of course, Runner's World has ad, had ads on it too, but I didn't, I wasn't the one making those deals. So Runner's World, that allowed me to get paid for doing that blog, which I was just doing for free um, without having to directly take advertising. So it was, it was a really neat opportunity for me. It's very cool. And, and now you're on outside and how long has, um, how long have you been yeah, there? Yeah. So in the fall of 2017, uh, I, I, I basically moved the blog over to Outside Magazine. And that was the, the, the main motivation for me at that time was uh, I, I wanted to just have a little bit broader palette to, to paint on as it were, you know, you, I, I'm a big fan of running. I run every day, but at a certain point, you don't, you, there's only so many things you can say about running. And so, um, and, and runner's world was very good, but you know, they let me write about studies that involved cycling and, and, you know, hiking and things like that. But, but if, you know, runner's world is runner's world. So the, their focus is running. And so outside, 
has an interest in running, but it also has a, a broader interest. So I've been able to sort of explore uh, a slightly broader range of topics within the still within the same. It actually sort of goes back to what I was doing when Sweat Science was just my own little WordPress blog, where, where I could be a little uh, more broad about the things that I was interested in exploring. Yeah, just before we um, hopped on the call, I was going through and looking at some of the more recent topics, and it, it, it's just fascinating some of the things you write about. Um, one of them was just, I think, just being more self-aware and can it predict um, injury prevention um, and things like that. So it's very cool that uh, you have that opportunity to write about all things endurance. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it keeps it fresher for me that you know I can at any given time there's a few journals you know a list of journals that I'll go through their contents regularly but at a certain point and 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 they may be good journals but you know after you've been reading every issue for a couple of years it's like uh I've kind of I I feel like I've kind of dug this well as deep as I can go so you know moving over to outside all of a sudden it's like oh you know there's a journal called wilderness and environmental medicine I'm I'm never going to read that for for runner's world but I read that and it's like there's some pretty cool stuff in here about you know what it takes to hike across the, the you know hike rim to rim in the Grand Canyon the characteristics of hikers who do that or I can look at more you know like you said there's I, I've been really interested lately in some of the more in, in some of the psychology literature like that one you, you mentioned which has looked at like you know self regulatory traits like conscientiousness and, and whether that predicts whether you can end up with an overuse injury and there was an earlier study along similar lines that found people with perfectionism traits were like 16 times more likely to get uh, you know, running injuries. And we all kind of understand this intuitively, but it's pretty crazy that you can think about, you know, what the study involves, you go to a cross country team, you have them all fill out a pretty simple questionnaire that measures their traits like perfectionism. And based on those results, you can have a really good idea of who's going to be most likely to end up with a stress fracture. And and you can, you know, you can imagine that that can start to be useful when you can say, okay, we've really got to watch, you know, Bobby here because he's going to push himself so hard that he's not going to back off when even even if he starts to feel some warning signs. That's so interesting because now I think I work for Training Peaks and we're a um, software company for endurance coaches and athletes. And so we place a lot of emphasis on the devices and the metrics and things like that. And it's always interesting to me to hear when you take something so simple as just talking to somebody and finding out a little bit about their personality and how that can be a performance predictor or an injury predictor. Um, and so it's, it's just a good reminder that we need to keep those things as well as this new science. Yeah, for sure. Out. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that over the last, let's say two or three years, uh, there's been a lot of recognition that things like perceived effort, maybe even more, let's, let's call it five years. People have sort of realized that, yeah, it's great to, to be quantifying, you know, training stress and things like that. But if you if you have that and you have a sense of like how hard was that on a scale of one to five or one to ten, um, it's even richer information because then you can see oh like he's working the same but he's reporting that it's harder or he's he he he's saying it's the same effort but he's he's able to absorb more effort or more more training stress so he's getting fitter so yeah just the, the realization that that our our subjective uh, responses to questions can can not can replace data but can supplement data. So now, um, your most recent book, which I've mentioned several times, is Endure. What was the motivation for that book? Yeah, I, I guess it, it goes back about a decade when I first encountered uh, Tim Noakes's research. So Tim Noakes is the uh, scientist from South Africa who's uh, uh, let's let's say he's a controversial guy. He, he he's he's been at the center of many con- controversies, to put it mildly. 
and and stay and it remains at the center of many controversies. Anyway, I, I started to encounter his work probably about two thousand seven or so. Uh, his sort of questioning the uh, hydration that oh come on dehydration isn't such a big deal. And I was like, what are you talking about? I I read in Lore of Running Tim Noakes's book in the nineties. I memorized that book, and and you know it, it, hydration is serious. Um, and then I looked at right. some of his his sort of looked at deeper under research in, in, into his research and realized he had this sort of broader critique of the body centered view of physical limits and of endurance performance, and and that he felt that we should we needed to incorporate the the brain in that picture, and that he had this model called the central governor model, uh, ar- arguing that really when we're pushing as hard as we can, it's not that we run into some sort of physical limit where our muscles can't push any further. It's our brain decides that's far enough. And, you know, for your own safety, you shouldn't go farther. And so that's an idea that had emerged in the late 90s, but I didn't really encounter it until the mid 2000s. And when I started to look into this research, I thought, this is really fascinating. And I thought, I haven't heard a lot about it. And I also thought, this really gels with my subjective experience of what racing was like. It's like, why is it that I have a finishing kick at the end of a race, even when I felt like I was totally out of gas three quarters through the race? And why is it that from one week to the next, some days I, you know, I have better races than others, even though my fitness hasn't changed and so on and so on. It just really, it really clicked for me. And I, so I decided I, I wanted to write a book about, you know, Tim Noakes and the revolution in exercise physiology. And this was about 2009. And I went and visited him in South Africa in 2010. And you know, in, in a perfect world, <laughs> my book would have come out in 2011. Uh, but but uh, <laughs> what I found is the deeper I got, uh, the more nuanced the picture got. And so I'm, I mean, I remain a huge fan of of Noakes's research. Uh, I'm not sure it's the final answer, and there's other people who have you know s- slightly different or dramatically different views, and and they have interesting evidence too. So Endure ended up being, it's definitely a book about the role of the brain in physical limits. Uh, but it's not just a book about Tim Noakes' research. It's a, it became a much broader attempt to summarize what we know about not just about, about what scientists know and what they're still arguing about, rather than just about what Tim Noakes Tim Noakes knows. And so, as a result, it ended up taking me you know eight eight years or something instead of the the one or two that I thought it would take me initially. I've been um, diving into it, and I I think I'm about three quarters of the way through at this point, and it really is fascinating in that. Um, so I guess what I'm saying, one, is I'm I'm glad you, that you didn't just phone it in and that you did take the time uh, to put it together because like it's just so fascinating to learn about a lot of these things. Um, and so just hearing that the brain, it's almost like a protective mechanism at times. Um, and if you can find ways to, I guess, hack that, you might be able to eke out a little bit more performance uh, in certain situations. Yeah, and and you know the truth is, and I and I don't mean to spoil any endings or anything like that, but the, <laughs> the, the truth is that hacking it is harder than it than it that than than you might hope. The one thing that's sort of conspicuously absent from the book is the sort of here's the seven things you should do that will allow you to reset your central governor, um, because the because tr- it's very it turns out to be much harder than I sort of expected to be able to reset it. But I, to me, it's still a really I mean, and there are there are some ideas in there uh, about. How you can learn to to sort of get past that central governor, but the, the, to me the fundamental thing is is the idea itself, because I, I think there's something very limiting about running a race and having the mindset of like, okay, that's as fast as I could run, that's what my body is capable of, versus running a race and believing that okay, that's what I was able to do today, but if I can learn to push a little bit harder, I can I can run faster next week. 
uh, or or swim and bike faster as the case may be. Um, so, you know, I think it's an important insight and, you know, you, you can draw some parallels to the learning literature where, where they've, you know, there, there's all this talk about things like grit and, and learning mindset and or growth mindset, where if you believe you can get better at things, you, you're more likely to do the work that makes you get better at things. Whereas if you believe it's just like, well, either I'm smarter or I'm not, then you don't bother studying hard. And I think that there's there's real parallels in in athletics. And if you if you if you realize that your your quote unquote physical limits depend on a lot on on uh, or aren't set in stone and are, and can be moved, then you're much more likely to do the work, the, both the physical and mental work, to try and move those limits. One thing I found um, interesting is the notion of kind of training pain or training your tolerance to pain. And I, that's definitely something that I've experienced and I've experienced with athletes as well is that with a newer athlete, they might be, they just don't know how to suffer at that point. And so they're wanting, maybe in their mind, they're thinking, okay, well, if I do this, I'm going to get faster, but I'm going to be comfortable at this higher pace where really the reality is that, no, you're going to get faster, but it's still going to hurt like hell. And like, and that's where you really break through those limits. And so what did you learn in in writing this book about that kind of training pain and um yeah the need to suffer the the, the pain thing was, has been really really interesting to me partly because it goes back to one of those uh, I, well those questions that at least for, for among my friends always came up on you know sunday long runs or whatever it's like who suffers more in a marathon is it you know Elliot Kipchoge running for 2 hours or is it Joe Schmo running for 4 hours because Joe Schmo is out there for twice as long. And, 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 you know, so he must be, you know, those lucky elite marathoners who are only out there for two hours. And without meaning to sound too, like, elitist about it, my, my, my response has always been, yeah, but Elliot Kipchoge knows how to suffer, how to absolutely keep himself on the knife edge for all those two hours. And for the most part, it's not, it's, it's maybe not proportional to speed because some, there are some very experienced and tough athletes who, who might be running four hour marathons, but it's proportional to experience. If you're a beginner, regardless how fast you are, you, you probably haven't learned to hold your finger in the flame quite as hard. And so it, this is, this is something that I've been arguing about with friends for, you know, 30 years or 25 years, but, but it was fascinating to, to then d dive into this literature on athletes and pain tolerance and realize, oh yeah, there's, there's pretty good evidence that, okay, first of all, if you, if you compare athletes and non-athletes, um, and you do pain tests on them, they all have the same pain sensitivities. So it's not like athletes are, have been callous to pain. They feel pain just like everyone else, but they're willing to tolerate much, much higher levels. They've learned to tolerate pain. But then the really fascinating detail to me was the evidence that looked at trained athletes, like elite athletes, the, the study I'm thinking of was in swimmers, at different points in their season. And, and they found that as they approached their, their goal race, their pain tolerance as tested with a, you know, uh, with a blood pressure cuff cutting off circulation to their arm, they were willing to tolerate more and more pain as they got closer to their goal race. And then their to pain tolerance dropped to its lowest level during their off season. And so what this tells me, it's not like you, it's, it's not that you learn to suffer once and then you never have to think about it again. It's that it's a constant, constant process of preparing yourself to suffer and, and dealing, getting ready to deal with higher and higher levels of discomfort. That, and you have to climb that hill every season and before every race. You don't just learn it once. So one thing is, as I was reading the book, something that kind of popped into my head and it's something that I found, it's kind of an interesting phenomena that 
I've noticed over the last several years. And it's with athletes, there's, they're kind of gravitating towards these longer and longer events such as Ironman or ultra running or a triple Ironman and things like that. And so as I was reading the book, one thing, I think at some point you talked about the joy of suffering and I've always wondered if there's just kind of this primal need or this desire to suffer. And so do you think there's anything to that with these people that really the whole goal of the race is just to see what you can endure? Yeah, I I I do think I've come around to that point of view, and I started thinking about this because I was at a conference, and 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 one of the presenters said something along the lines of like, "Let's be honest, most successful athletes probably have or endurance athletes probably have a, a hint of benign masochism that they at, <laughs> at at some level they're not they're not out there you know tying themselves up with with barbed wire or anything, but at some level they kind of enjoy the the suffering." And, and this sort of, I, I, this got me thinking and it got me thinking because as well as thinking about endurance performance it, as a journalist, I also think about health and like how to get people exercising more. And one, you know, one of the great mysteries for people who are in the habit of exercising every day uh, or most days is why doesn't everybody else do this? You know, it just feels so good. You just, I mean, it's, it's so wonderful to be in this, this routine of getting out there and pushing your body and, 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 and just feeling healthy. Why don't other people do this? And, and finally it sort of occurred to me, it's like, maybe other people experience the same things as I do differently. You know, like, um, it's actually it sort of reminds me of my, I have a four-year-old daughter who, you know, will, will say that this food is too spicy. And I'll be like, it's a glass of water. It's not spicy. And she'll say to me, you don't know my body. You can't tell me what my <laughs> body feels. My body might feel differently than yours. And I'm like, no, it's, it's seriously, it's a glass of water. Ella. But and sort of digression there, but, but it's kind of like with exercise, it's like, no, it feels so good to have been out for a, a run. It's like, well, maybe for other people, that just feels downright bad. And there's something about me that makes me enjoy that. That what feels good to me is actually the discomfort that's inherent in, you know, serious endurance exercise, right? Like, let's be honest, right? It, 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 it is uncomfortable. And so why do I enjoy it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I have a streak of benign masochism. So maybe that's the next frontier <laughs> of like under, you know, personality psychology is not who gets injured. It's like, who is likely to become an endurance athlete in the first place? And did they get dropped on their heads as kids or something like that? That's really interesting you say that because that's always been one of my um, theories is that I feel like people who maybe endured some hardship early in life or had to deal with something, like they're more likely to succeed in sport because they're the ones that can deal with um, but hardship, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There is some research, there was some research with like British Olympians uh, past published in the last couple of years where they, they looked at like medalists versus near medalists and the people who really made it to the top, they all had what some, what they called childhood trauma. Now the trauma may have just been, you know, parents separating or, or, you know, went through something that was, that they perceived as a challenge in their lives and that left them maybe with a bit of a chip on their shoulder. And I was actually doing an article a, a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two ago about what it takes to, uh, to, there was a, a study about the, the, the best predictors for success in the uh, rangers' physical fitness tests. So I was talking to some people in the special forces, like, how do you know if someone's going to get through uh, special for you know special forces training or selection, whether it's Navy SEAL or whatever? And and they're like, yeah, you know, like obviously you need to be able to do some pull ups, but uh, being able to do a lot of pull ups or whatever the physical test may be only gets you so far. And one of the guys I talked to, who who is a, a former Navy SEAL trainer, he said, yeah, the, we we there's basically 
three things and they have if you've got two of these three things you're you're a pretty good candidate of making it through and and the three things were if i remember correctly your parents were separated uh you were uh, a varsity athlete in high school at least and you'd been kicked out of school at least once <laughs> and it's like so so it's a mix of things like you have to have the physical characteristics but but maybe some sort of like you said some some sort of chip on your shoulder yeah yeah i could totally see that in your research did you find anything that people could do, especially the coaches that are listening, are there things that will help to train people's pain tolerance or kind of DIY brain training that you came across? Yeah. So I, you know, I spent a bunch of time looking into, into brain endurance training, which is this emergence, emerging idea of, you know, basically training your capacity to stay on task and on focus over long periods of time and fight against mental, mental fatigue. And that's maybe that's a a topic for another time, I guess. But what I would say is I don't think that's uh, necessarily, I think it works, but it's not necessarily ready for prime time or easy to integrate into normal training. If there was one thing I was going to say that people should be looking into now, and that's not, it doesn't require sophisticated equipment or anything like that, uh, it's actually a traditional sports psychology technique called motivational self-talk, which is really at, at, at its essence is just, first of all, becoming aware of the internal monologue in an athlete's head. So if you're in a race and you're saying, you know, this sucks, why am I doing this? I hate this. Or or this, or if you're thinking, I always, you know, get dropped in, in, in the, you know, the second half of the race and this, these guys are going to leave me in the dust or whatever. That's a real problem. And that, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it changes how you're brain perceives the effort that you're undergoing. It makes things feel harder and that makes you more likely to slow down or give up. And so if you can learn to replace those, that negative self-talk with more positive self-talk, like I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this. I can, I, I've trained for this. I, I can keep pushing. There's been some really fascinating research that shows that really works. And so when you zoom out and think about what, well, what is that really about? It's about instilling belief. And so from a coach's perspective, I think this is, this is one of the I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the biggest, maybe I'm exaggerating, but one of the biggest roles of a coach, uh, you know, that sure a coach can tell you what intervals to do, but I think the, the best coaches are successful at instilling in their athletes, a belief that they've done what, what's, what's required to be successful, uh, and, and that they're going to be successful. And so for coaches, I think it's, it's a really challenging thing because, if you're an honest coach, you're not necessarily going to say, I have discovered the secret magic that is going to make you the fastest athlete in the world. And if you do exactly this, you will become invincible and you'll be able to fly because that's not true. So you, so you, you want, you have to be honest with your athletes, but at the same time, convey to them the work that you've done to, to, to make sure that you're giving them the best possible advice. It doesn't mean you know everything and that you have all the answers, but it means you've done your due diligence that they're going to be as well prepared or better prepared than anyone else that they're facing and that that's going to, you're going to set them up for success. So, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here, but I guess I, I really think that's a, an important role for coaches is to get the athletes to buy into what you're doing and, and share your conviction and your enthusiasm that, that you're doing the, the best possible preparation. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you there that as you're talking about that, I was thinking about with some of the athletes that I've worked with and, I've always had the thought that if they didn't believe in the training, it didn't matter how well trained they were. If they start out, showed up at the start line doubting what they've been doing to prepare, they've already kind of lost. And it sounds like <laughs> that's kind of what you were um, 
saying right there is that really, if you can get that athlete to buy in and to trust in the process, then that will set them up for success. Yeah. And, and, you know, like (laughs) good coaches have been saying this for years, right? Like we've always understood this, but it was fascinating to me to, to see some science that, that kind of backs that up and says, yeah, the, the role of belief is really important. And of course it's not trivial to instill belief in athletes that that, that's a, that's a specific skill set that so so for instance I will say I don't coach athletes I I think I have some some valuable skills in terms of understanding the 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 details of training and recovery and things like that but that's not the key differential that separates a good coach from a bad coach and and, and so I think yeah, co- coaches need to uh recognize their own strengths in terms of being able to con- convey enthusiasm and belief to their athletes That's great and um really good advice so on that note, do you have any, if you were to talk to a coach with that in mind about um, being able to instill belief and get buy-in from the athlete, is there anything you've come across that you would recommend for a coach either um, go watch or listen to or read? Yeah. So it, I guess uh, <laughs> recent stuff that that I've I found interesting, uh, there's a book by Christy Ashwanden called uh, Good to Go about the science of athletic recovery. It just came out uh, in February. And it's, it, 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 you know what, it's a cha- it'll be a challenging read for coaches because uh, essentially the message <laughs> in a lot of cases is here's 12 chapters on different recovery techniques. And the conclusion is there's very scanty evidence for almost all <laughs> of the, 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 those things. So how does a coach, I mean, this to me, and this is getting back to what I was saying before, this is one of the fundamental challenges that faces coaches. How do you assimilate that information, continue to give good advice to your athletes without filling them with doubt um, about the things they're doing? And so, but but I think it's better to be armed with the information than to just sort of keep your head in the sand and just pretend that just because we've been doing something in the past, it must work. So I think that's a good a, a, a good book to read to get a sense of what the current state of knowledge is about recovery, which is, as we all know, is, is, you know, one of the fundamental challenges of, of, you know, endurance training and performance. Um, you know, I I read it with an open mind and, and doesn't mean that you need to then abandon everything you've been doing, but, 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 but take a critical look at, at some of your routines and figure out, cause, cause what Christie's book also does do is highlight some of the things that she thinks are important, uh, about, broader recovery uh giving your giving your body some downtime giving your mind some downtime equally importantly getting away from stress and so there may be some tweaks you can make to the recovery routines you use that emphasize those things instead of maybe fixating on you know clearing lactic acid out of the blood which is kind of a a paradigm that it doesn't really have much evidence behind it so so yeah good, good to go by christy ishwan and I, I would say is is a useful and challenging read um I mean, there's a new, another new book by uh, by Brad Stillwork and Steve Magnus, which is less specific to sports. It's it's called the Passion Paradox, uh, and it's a follow up to their book from two years ago, uh, Peak Performance. Uh, Steve Magnus is probably familiar to to, to many of listeners. He's a you know a prominent track coach, and Brad Stillberg is a a journalist who writes about uh, perform high performance. So th- they're very thought provoking guys, and they're very good at laying out a whole bunch of complex ideas in a clear and, and simple way. So that and the passion paradoxes kind of gets into um, something that triathletes are, should certainly be 
familiar with, which is the idea of how you balance an you know a, a passion that become can become all consuming without having it take over your life or, or, and and become a negative factor in your life. So I think that's a, a useful one to read. And the the third and final plug I'll give is for a book that I haven't read yet. Um, it's due out at the end of May. It's called Range by David Epstein, and it's about okay. it's it's kind of a, a pushback against the idea that we all need ten thousand hours to uh, master any given domain, and we have to start when we're three if we're going to be successful. It's a, instead a, it's a praise of you know maybe it's a good book for triathletes in the sense that it's a it's a praise of mastering <laughs> different domains and that it'll make you better at at each at 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 all the things you try if you if you're not just a pure specialist. Anyway, David Epstein. His book, The Sports Gene, from I guess six years ago, is to my mind the best sports science book I've ever read. So I'm I'm very excited to check out Range next month. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that one coming out, but I'm a big fan of uh, the Sports Gene as well. Um, so thank you very much for your time. You're going to be um, one of our keynotes at the 2019 Endurance Coaching Summit in September. Yeah. Um, so we will see you there. Uh, before I let you go, any thoughts on what your next book will be? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm. Put it this way, I, I, I can answer that I'm very excited about the the, the the summit. The next book I'm really struggling with. I gave myself a deadline of uh, December 2018 to figure out a topic, but that that blew by without any perceptible uh, <laughs> change. The, the the problem is that because I spent like 10 years on the last book, I'm I'm a little bit gun shy about picking another topic and thinking, oh, is this interesting enough for another 10 years? So right. um, yeah, I, I, I'm. I think probably the plan for the next year is to to do some sort of long form magazine journalism and give myself a chance to dip my toe into a few different topics and see if there's one that really uh, grabs me. But the, the truth is right now, I, I, I really, really have no idea. Well, we'll be keeping an eye out for it. And I look forward to seeing you in September. Awesome. I look forward to seeing you then. Dave. All right. Take care, Alex. Hey guys, Dave here again. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Alex Hutchinson. I hope you learned a lot because I know I sure did. Be sure to check him out at this year's Endurance Coaching Summit and use ECS CoachCast 20 to take 20% off your Endurance Coaching Summit registration or the Endurance Coaching Summit online. Until next time.